Can we uh, talk about something other than politics? Uh, don't get me wrong. Our political system matters. And to use a famous quote, elections have consequences. But permit me to state the obvious. Politicians aren't innovators or inventors. Uh, the future for our economy is dominated by technology progress. And technology progress is, depending on circumstances or insight or luck or bad luck, it's something that, uh, well, it's the kind of thing that politicians will take credit for or impede or encourage. But it's, let's just say, largely exogenous to the political class. So in this episode, I'd like, to, I'd like to return to an underlying theme, one in my book, which I continue to promote, of course. I'm going to talk about the proverbial big picture because, well, you know, sometimes the big picture, the big forces, you know, like the tide that rises, it matters and it tells you something about the future. And this is not that it's uh, an issue independent from politics, but understanding what the future could offer is certainly relevant to informing us of what we might want to see happen in the political and public policy domains to allow the future to unfold, if you like. So, so politics aside, I, and I, I do, as you know, uh, talk about and write about a promise for a brighter future. And it does seem discordant, I realize, in our days of dystopian preoccupations and all the challenges the world faces. And I don't make light of them and the challenges are long and they include, you know, they include the withering effects of inflation, the rise of woke sensibilities, the erosion of pride in America. For those of us who, I mean, I came to America because uh, I wanted to as an immigrant from Canada, as uh, many of you know. And for want of a better word, there's a lot of worry still about climate change across the land, uh, whether, whether it's worries about economic challenges and potential military conflicts with China and of course the brutal war in Ukraine. We got we got problems. And they're all, as I said, self-evidently serious issues and need to be taken on. But the nature and future of technology, I would argue, infuses and dominates not only the, the features of many of these issues, but the outcomes, frankly, of every one of these issues. If you think through each of them, Technology has a, not only a role in relevance, uh, what, what the nature of technology will be in the future, but in some cases, utterly dominates the outcome. So any society and its future prospects, to use a, the proverbial three-legged stool analogy, it's supported by three things, right? A functioning economic system, by sensible governance, and by technologies. And the stool won't stand without all three. So Monetary policy matters. I mean, you know that old adage that uh, that's as old as the institution of the Fed. Don't bet against the Fed. So, what today appears that you know it's a Fed that today appears bent on creating a recession to you know, tamp down. That's their that's their means for tamping down tamping down inflation. And it's important to get monetary policy right and to tame inflation. Look at in, look at, if you don't have to look further than Argentina and Venezuela to note just two examples about the consequences of monetary policy run amok and come back to getting politics right in the wake of our recent election. You know, governments over history have demonstrated repeatedly that it's possible to either allow flourishing to happen, economic flourishing, or inversely to destroy it, to Sovietize an economy by over control, the state managing things, over managing. Most likely um, you're familiar with the aphorism uh, that a democracy is a particularly vexing means of governance, a terrible form of organizing people, except that everything else is worse. So when it comes to uh, understanding and framing the role of technology and why I want to talk about it, let's consider a, a simple thought experiment. Imagine that over the uh, nearly two centuries or so of since the nation's founding that we had achieved sort of perfection and political governance and perfection and monetary policy and uh, perfection and social committees and that we all hug and get along and our, our government is operating smoothly and efficiently. But if the technology progress that had occurred over that time had never occurred, if instead technology had been static since then, then today we'd be a nation of farmers. We wouldn't be that much wealthier. 
and there wouldn't be have any wouldn't have been any of the revolutions, not just in the economy, but in safety and comforts and conveniences that we take for granted. The singular difference between then and now is not that wars have come and gone, and not that recessions and even depressions have come and gone, but the singular difference between then and now, the founding of the country, if you like, is that there's been a three thousand percent rise in the average inflation-adjusted overall wealth of Americans. Well, consider the same thought experiment or observation over a shorter time period. If you just go back uh, compared to 100 years ago or 50 years ago, again, the unprecedented expansion of wealth and well-being was driven almost entirely by technology progress. So you say, well, it, this time it's different. You know, This time we got the rise of China. And again, this invoke it again, we got climate change. Look, the proposition that technology leadership um, matters is, again, self-evidently right. We got a shift in leadership in China. Uh, and we'll see how that goes for the Chinese. And our leadership here and in Europe are trying to push a near monomaniacal focus on changing our infrastructure to provide energy for society. Right? That's true. A lot of money is going to be spent there. And before I turn in, in a minute to the exploration of the broader framework for how technology is changing and how it will impact our future. I, you got to say a few words about the uh, the trope that uh, the technology future is going to be driven by what China does because China is out competing us, outperforming us. They look at, look at the incredible growth that China's seen in the last uh, two decades. Look, the open secret about China's remarkable growth over this past like, half century or so, but certainly the last two decades has been the role of, ironically, free markets and capitalism in that country, although it's the country has used, its leader has said, with Chinese characteristics. But it's fundamentally the creation of their free enterprise zones. And until recently, they're allowing an explosive growth in, in the private uh, markets and publicly listed Chinese co companies and businesses. Now, the jury is obviously out now whether that growth continues under the new crackdowns. Um, the govern governance that uh, erodes freedoms uh, in that country, governance that uh, leads to policies that are, so if you like, innovation by diktat, that that uh, that model doesn't work too well. I mean, we know it doesn't. And we give again, I'll let's give simple simple conceptual examples without you know diving deep into the history of innovation in America. You can use the Nobel Prizes as a bellwether for what the difference between the Chinese model for innovation in let's call it the West or America's model for innovation, if you like the fruits of a free society in producing imaginative breakthroughs that lead to uh, emblematic uh, innovations, the things that change the world. The Nobel Prize is not a perfect metric, obviously, but for long run trends that are driven by new ideas, I think it's probably a pretty interesting foundational gauge, uh, a better gauge, frankly, than measuring revenues or market valuations of new tech companies. And the latter matters, of course, not just for investors. I mean, new companies matter. But the former, the Nobel Prize, if you like, is a call it a bellwether for foundational innovation, innovation and the nature of how a political system and a social system can allow a really creative, creative thinking to flourish. Nobels are pretty good. And yeah, and the Nobel Committee is not is made up of people, so it's not insulated from political and social biases. But you could say you probably argue pretty pretty uh, solidly that to the extent that political and social bias creeps into the Nobel selection process, it's mainly isolated to their their peace and literature prizes. The core prizes, you know, science prizes, the physics, chemistry, and medicine prizes, those are pretty pretty much agnostic to uh, social pressures. They, you know, the Nobel Committee looks for profound changes in insights, profound discoveries. So, but that is a preamble. Here's something to think about with respect to uh, the future and America's ability to compete with China. And again, we're using the past as a predictor of the future. It's not a bad metric, not perfect, pretty good. So there's been a collected a collective total of 273 Nobel Prizes awarded to Americans in physics, chemistry, and medicine, those categories collectively. China has won seven. So 273 to Americans in physics, chemistry, and medicine in China, Seven. How about the Nobel in economics? I mean, it's not a bad indicator of sort of creative thinking about economic systems. Americans have been awarded 61 Nobel Prizes in economics. 
That's 10 times more prices nearly than the number two winner, United Kingdom. China, you will be unsurprised to learn, has won none in that category. Well, how about claims that the technology-driven energy energy transition is what we should be looking to as a, a, me, a measure of a future innovation? You know, China is, of course, uh, famously or infamously the epicenter of production of solar panels. 80 or 90% of the solar modules in the world are manufactured in China. They utterly dominate the production of chemistries for lithium-ion batteries. Well, literally dominate something like 70 or 80% of the refined chemicals that go into making electric cars uh, are produced in China. Well, energy matters. Uh, I've talked about this a lot and it, it does, it does, it matters a lot. It matters a lot to economies, but I want to talk about foundational changes for the future and the future of energy and the future of energy technologies will reflect very much the recent past because we, we know how much we can change in energy technologies. We know the velocity of those domains. They're very big domains. We're not talking about overnight changes. And we're and we're looking at the next two decades and using the adage I've used many times is that the near future is, is predicted based on changes in the near past. And in energy technologies, we know what the changes are. We've spent, again, uh, I've said this in re recent podcasts, the Western world has spent something on the order of $5 trillion to uh, on non-hydrocarbon sources of energy with non-hydrocarbon energy technologies to try to replace hydrocarbons, oil, gas, and coal. And over the two decades of $5 trillion of spending, the share of world's energy supplied by hydrocarbons has decreased about two percentage points. So it's now around 82, 82 percentage points of world's energy is uh, provided by hydrocarbons, two percentage points down. And the overall consumption of hydrocarbons has gone up by an amount equal to adding about six Saudi Arabia's worth of energy production. So will we have more um, wind, solar, and batteries, electric cars in the future? Sure, a lot more. But this is a slow-moving uh, process. And in fact, it's these aren't, these aren't uh, revolutions in any foundational way in terms of our economy, in terms of uh, economic productivity. In fact, arguably, the mandates and shifts requiring using more wind, solar, and batteries are anti-productive. That is, you're getting the same output of product by spending more on materials and money on the input. That is not productive. That, in fact, is inflationary. Unless we bend the knee of the curve on these technologies and make them a lot cheaper, okay, for the record, they're getting more expensive, not cheaper. Unless we do that, we're going to we're going to continue to see that as an inflationary feature of the future, which we hope will get offset by more innovation elsewhere. But you know, EVs are going to be more of them. Uh, China will build all the materials. We'll build factories here. But the, an EV is let's let's restate again. A truism, an electric vehicle is still a car. In fact, it's a more expensive car, again, inflationary, than the internal combustion engine it replaces. It's not a better car, it's a different car, it's still a car. Going from a horse and buggy to a car was a revolution. Changing the fuel a car uses is equivalent to changing the food that horses ate at the time of the automobile revolution. Changing food and fuel, important, not revolutionary in terms of changing economies. So enough about energy in, in cars. I just wanted to put in context uh, those preoccupations because the primary engine of innovation for society and in, in the underlying changes in technology, those things do matter. They matter fun fundamentally. They matter. In fact, they, they matter in many ways more than anything. The other two legs of the stool matter, but they matter at a fundamental level more than anything. In fact, Let's just do a very big high-level macro observation. Think about this uh, question. What's the principal difference between how people live today and how Neanderthals lived 10,000 years ago? What's the single biggest difference? I mean, the Neanderthals that lived 10,000 years ago had available to them all the exactly the same atoms that exist. All the atoms that we use on the periodic table existed then. They have not changed. In fact, they're exactly the same atoms. They've been around for billions of years. They don't go away. They they get re literally get recycled perfectly. They don't they don't disappear. We don't we can't we don't create them. They weren't created by us. All the energy systems and uh, rather all the energy physics, all the energy forces, all the forces of nature 
that exist today existed at the time of the Neanderthals. So the biggest difference between the Neanderthals way of life and our way of life is to put it in, in a very simple in term is what we know, information. What we know about the these forces, what we understand about how to combine atoms in different ways and using energy and forces to combine those atoms in different ways to make the kinds of products and services that Neanderthals couldn't even have imagined, much less built. The single defining feature of civilization's progress then is that humans acquire information and knowledge and the, that leads to new ideas that are instantiated as new products and new services by using energy to create novel arrangements of the same atoms that have already always existed. It's not that there aren't complementary developments and new ideas about how to organize society. Right? There have been, or how to, you know, how to measure financial exchanges or how to even engage in financial exchanges. Um, those are, those constitute new ideas as well. They're important ideas, but as I said, at the outset, those ideas, new ideas of governance, if that's all we had, and new ideas of exchange, if that's all we had, but we didn't have any new technology, we wouldn't be wealthier. We wouldn't be better off. We wouldn't be significantly better off than Neanderthals, frankly. We certainly wouldn't be better off than how people lived at the time of uh, the founding of this country. You know, our ability to protect ourselves from nature, you know, nature is hostile to humanity. Nature has been trying to kill humans for all of all of time, you know, whether it's natural disasters or natural predations from bacteria and viruses. We protect ourselves from nature. We improve our ability to survive. We improve the quality of life through technology. Uh, technology is what gives us not just access to more resources, more efficiently, more cleanly. It's how we get conveniences and comforts and beauty and entertainment. It is the underlying sort of engine if you like, of all the gains that we've seen in society for quality of life and the eradication of abject poverty. Economists call this uh, productivity, right? Productivity is a metric that they, the economists used to simply say that the obvious in some sense, but to document it, it's led to a Nobel Prize for Robert Solow in 1987 to document the fact that rising productivity, that is more output, of a product or service and getting a better quality as well as higher output of a product or service by using fewer inputs of labor, materials, and energy. That is what creates wealth. That's what expands the pie. That's what allows more people to have more real wealth to do more than just survive, but to have wealth to improve the physical environment we live in, to do things like educate, improve healthcare, to spend money and time on entertainment. The factors that drive productivity, the underlying sort of technology factors, are really ones that economists have trouble uh, forecasting. In fact, as as uh, is obvious, if we look back over time, whether in specific forecasts or whether we look at just the data, economists are very good at analyzing retrospectively the role of productivity driving technologies, but they have no track record in predicting the emergence of new technologies to drive productivity. This has been true for the entire period that we measure such predictions, which is essentially the modern world, but you can find to find the same true in back over history, going back into the Middle Ages. Economists, thinkers uh, don't anticipate, don't forecast uh, breakthroughs. Innovators, uh, Imagineers in Disney's uh, language, they're the ones that create the breakthroughs, that create the new classes of technologies. But we don't have to guess what they are, by the way. This is this is what's interesting. Uh, again, to, to beat to beat to beat the drum for my book. This is the core theme of my book. You know, you know what the new innovations are because they've already been invented. That is, I don't mean invented in the sense of announced in the announced that uh in the press today that look, there's a new invention, a new idea, a new aspiration, but rather something that was invented a decade or two ago that is, that innovators and engineers have spent the last decade or two trying to turn into a commercial product that's just recently become technologically viable. In other words, you can predict the future based on things that have already happened. This is the this is the line that uh, that I, I stole from Peter Drucker who when he wrote in the Wall Street Journal back at the end of the 20th century that uh, he stopped making forecasts 
you know, he stopped making forecasts early in his career because he forecast as a young man in a column in 1929 that the stock market would keep going up. And of course, just a week later was the greatest stock market collapse so far in the history of the stock market. So he said he stopped making forecasts except for things that had already happened. And by that, he meant predicting things that are already underway. Uh, these would be true for dem demographic trends. The United States would be an older country in the future than it is in the present. You can predict that. That has economic and social consequence. You can also predict in the technology spaces things that have already happened because you don't have to look very far to find them. Not, not products and ideas that people announce that they might imagine they want to do, but technologies and products and ideas that are already commercial again, that are underutilized. I mean, a good example going back in time would be, say, circa 1920, predicting that with the advent of mass production for automobiles, which had just begun, it would have been predictable that there'd be a lot more cars in the near future and that they would have an economic impact, both in terms of the economy, the part of the economy that makes cars and, and the impacts on the economy on using automobiles. Uh, the cars had already been around for several decades by that point in time, but it would have been very difficult to predict widespread use of cars uh, early on until someone figured out, and, and it wasn't just Henry Ford, it was a constellation of advances in, in materials and manufacturing processes, the famous mass production line, but advances in steel, advances in, uh, in, in, in rubber, advances in the uh, development of fuel itself. The batteries were lousy then. The first cars were battery-powered cars. But the development of uh, refining processes to make gasoline, all those things happened and roughly contemporaneously and would lead you to a point where you'd look around and see that there were a few millions of cars in the world before 1920, but they would suddenly, you would expect that the that market would take off, a reasonable prediction to make. In fact, some people made those predictions back then. And it's that kind of framing that you want to think about uh, what are those technologies today? What's the equivalent to the car today? Again, it's not the electric car, it's still a car. If we pick one example, it would be the robot. I mean, if we want to talk about uh, something that's been around for a while, just this cars have been around for quite a while by 1920. In our time, you know, 2022, robots have been around, by that I mean, the, the, not we mean the robot in the in the sense that everybody imagines robots. Robots have been around for quite a while. Uh, it's a good example of a category creator, if you like. It's a perfect example of uh, technological automation reducing labor inputs, or material inputs. You get to get the same more output. It's a classic productivity creating machine. I mean, automation is a a tool that amplifies labor. Yes, it also. Uh, replaces labor, not just amplifies it. I mean, the story of the Luddites, it's the, that's the, cata, cata, that's a, the, the category creating, even word creating event in history, you know, just 200 years ago, of course, that the invention of the automated loom back then was intended to put out of work those people who manually wove yarn to make fabric. fabric. And of course, the Luddites were the ones who objected to the manual uh, process that they did being replaced by an automated process. Violent pro protests. Uh, in fact, that word became an invective, right? If you are if you oppose progress, you're a Luddite. Well, the Luddites were right, right? That automated uh, process eliminated their specific jobs, but it also dramatically reduced the cost of clothing. Remember in those days, uh, that sector, the uh, clothing and yarn and cloth part of the economy was comparable to, in fact, in most respects, bigger in relative terms than automobiles are in our economy today. It's a big deal. Uh, automating the production of cloth at that time, that part, part of the bottom of the production of cloth, expanded prosperity by freeing up capital for building other things. It made, made, it made it possible for other kinds of jobs to come. The overall effect on employment was positive and the overall effect on wealth was positive. It enabled people to buy and free up their money from not having to, to spend as much on clothing, which is self-evidently useful, to buy other non-essential things or essential things. So in, in 1966, a robot called Unimate, an automated one-armed welding machine, made, made a debut on TV on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. This is a robot that was um, designed specifically to reduce the number of humans doing a task, a welding task, because very specific task in an automotive production line. 
Unimate was a category creator. And the first ones were installed at a GM factory five years earlier, back in 1961. And that factory uh, quickly became the world's most productive, won awards. And the productivity leap that that robot, that class of robots, led to was similar in character and consequence to the 50-year earlier advent of the assembly line. I mean, automakers everywhere quickly adopted uh, and bought Unimates, or she is like it, from competitors. I mean, you could argue, in fact, that uh, that's why that that class of automation and that kind of robot is why cars became less expensive in real terms and why they simultaneously became more feature-laden and higher quality. It's a productivity-driving machine. Now, contemporaneous with uh, Unibate's invasion of factory floors, in fact, and before uh, Johnny Carson noticed, President Kennedy noticed that Unimates were, quote, replacing people. It, in fact, in a speech that's still, you can still find on the magic internet, President Kennedy said that it was obvious automation was replacing men. Of course, there was mostly men in his mind on the factory floors, which is true then, that the automation was replacing people, causing unemployment. So he commissioned a blue ribbon panel to recommend how to ensure there'd be enough jobs in the future in the face of the invasion of robots on factory floors. And it was that blue ribbon panel that led to the introduction of the idea and even the term uh, of a universal basic income, something that uh, those experts back then thought they would need very soon as automation uh, increasingly invaded the workforce and created permanent unemployment. It's true uh, that uh, it created unemployment in the specific sense that the Luddites were right, that specific jobs were eliminated, but other jobs were created. In fact, if we look at the 1960s, something on the order of 60% of the categories of employment that existed then no longer exist as categories of employment today. But rather than widespread and rampant unemployment today, we have the inverse. Uh, we've had periods of recession. We've had wars happen to come and go since then, but we haven't had permanent unemployment. Instead, what has happened is technology has made America a wealthier place overall in both qualitative and quantitative terms. It's progress that's a direct result of the kinds of, of changes epitomized by the robot. So it would have been pretty reasonable back in 1961, or if you had to wait till 1966 to see Unimate on Johnny Carson, it would have been reasonable to expect to see a lot more Unimates uh, as a forecast at that time, you know, proliferating and showing up in, in uh, factories. And you could, have, you could have reasonably expected that to be an inflection point. And many forecasters didn't see that. Some did, uh, most didn't. But the important point was a forecast made then would not have been around the aspiration of the idea of a robot, which is a very old idea, but rather the existence of a commercial product, not a prototype. But by 1961, it was a product. And by 66, it was a product that was already in ascendance, even though it was still uh, a very small share of total nature of automobile manufacturing. It became a dominant feature of automobile manufacturing over the coming decades. So let's fast forward almost exactly 60 years to come to our time to give you an example of uh, why I think our future is uh, on, on track for comparable revolutions and economic changes. So 60 years later, almost almost exactly 60 years later, The Tonight Show, again, early this year, in the same studio, but not with Johnny Carson at this now, but Jimmy Fallon, uh, there was a robot again. This time, it wasn't a, a bolted-to-the-floor one-armed robot. It was a dog-like automaton that its inventor, Boston Dynamics, calls Spot Mini. Uh, Spot Mini can can walk. It can it can operate autonomously. Not it doesn't have to live in a cage bolted to the floor like robots and car factories do. But rather, it can walk around in the same environment we humans walk around in, which makes it a revolutionary uh, product. And just like its ancient predecessor on the Tonight Show, you know, more than half a century ago, Spot Mini is not a, a stunt. It's not a demonstration. It's a commercial product. It's commercially available. It's being sold now. It went on the market uh, about a year ago, uh, and it's being purchased, leased, and used in industrial environments to do a very specific task. Now, the task that Unimate engaged in was welding on a bolted-down uh, assembly line. What Spot Mini is doing, primarily 
uh, right so far is inspection tasks or roaming around construction sites or industrial sites, inspecting things for safety reasons. Human beings do that today. The spot many can replace people doing that task. Uh, with spot many finds an anomaly through vision systems and software in the cloud, it alerts people, just like the human inspector would have done the same thing, alert people to come in and examine the specific problem or anomaly and fix it. Uh, safety, safety inspections are extraordinarily important. Uh, that's why people do them. That's why you assign human beings to do it. But if you can free up that person from doing it, uh, the employer doesn't fire that person in our employment environment, they upskill that person. And then typically we'll pay them more, a net win-win-win all the way around. Automation, creating uh, more value for the employer, more value for the employee. The key point here is that seeing a robot like that on television uh, as a commercial product in its early days, this is, these are early days, there aren't there aren't that many of them out there yet. They haven't made that many yet, but they're commercial. There are competitors. There will be many more competitors yet, especially once once there's a commercial product that businesses buy, you can guarantee though the competitors. This is very positive for a future. In fact, one competitor uh, is Elon Musk. Elon Musk, uh, in no coincidence, had a press conference. He didn't go on the Tonight Show. Maybe, maybe he will when his product is commercially available. But he held, he held a press conference to uh, reveal a prototype uh, humanoid anthropomorphic robot that Tesla plans to build. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's a big deal. You can take to the bank that if Elon Musk says he's going to build a product and shows you the prototype, that in due course, there'll be a product. This will, this will be part of the, the obvious process that's been going on since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, competition amongst suppliers to make ever better products to sell into the market, making them better and cheaper, driving productivity. So let me pull back up to the, the uh, from a specific product idea to the proverbial 50,000 foot level of uh, analysis on technology and what our future is going to look like. And look instead at uh, inputs to society inputs to the civilization's construction process. We build machines, we build machines that make services possible, we build structures. And the inputs are one way economists can measure um, the health of an economy, the growth of an economy, and whether an economy might look different in the near future, the near past, based on the rate of change of a market's purchase of key inputs. You don't have to know what the market's building with the inputs. Obviously, the market on average isn't stupid. People don't buy more of something. Uh, unless it has value. And by by that, businesses don't buy more inputs to build things just for fun. They buy more inputs because they're building more products with their inputs. So let's look at the three big inputs, uh, if you like, to civilization, steel, polymers or plastics, and now semiconductors. Uh, these, are, these, are the, these are the really uh, uh, foundational inputs to build all kinds of things in our society. Steel has been around for a long time. It's grown to become nearly a trillion dollar industry in terms of global sales. Um, polymers came along uh, early in the 20th century and they've grown rapidly to an industry selling into the world markets roughly co-equal in dollar terms to a steel. We're beginning to approach the trillion dollar mark. So that's sort of 700 billion, $700 billion of global polymer and plastic sales to make all manner of things, not just not just paper, paper uh, replacing paper cups uh, and plastic bags, but all kinds of uh, medical products uh, are utterly dependent on manufacturing uh, polymers. You know, medical devices. Look around you; all the things in your life, not just the clothing you wear, are all polymer-based. So, polymers are a big deal, a huge input to society. We see growth measured in the magnitude of polymer and steel purchases. Along came uh, semiconductors as a new basic input to society. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, it was growing extremely rapidly to become the third class of inputs to the manufacturing everything, everything from, again, medical devices to cars to toys and appliances. Semiconductors are increasingly in everything and have grown to rival in total dollar sales globally, polymers and steels. That's really quite remarkable, a very rapid, very rapid increase. Uh, but here's, here's what's important. It's not just that we now have a new class of input. Semiconductor, in, in many respects, is a remarkably new class of input because it's, it's, it's an active input, not a passive input. When you 
make something out of steel, it's it's steel. It's it's you know it's a steel product. When you make something with a semiconductor as part of the product, the product has a different feature, right? The product becomes reactive. It becomes smart. It has functionality. It's really different than a passive product. So that alone has economic uh, import. But what's more interesting about these three inputs and the predictive value of the change of this latest input is, of course, the rate of increase or change of the value of the marginal dollar of the new input. But that, think about this terms, the, the last marginal dollar you spent buying steel or polymer is going to give you an economic value roughly the same as the next marginal dollar you spend. Or put differently, the, the uh, feature value of the steel you buy tomorrow, its tensile strength, its ductility, its durability, same as for the polymers, is roughly the same as the last one you bought. Get, the steel gets better, polymers improve. Those industries continually to incrementally improve their product, but it's an incremental change. Your marginal dollar spent in the future gets you a similar economic value as the dollar you just spent in the past. Once I've framed it that way, it's self-evident. Everyone knows that the marginal dollar you spend on the next semiconductor is radically better than the last marginal dollar you spend. Hence the infamous refresh rates we keep you know, buying new smartphones. Uh, it's not because the, uh, they wear out, it's because the marginal dollar you spend provides a lot more value, which you can measure in economic terms. The fact that we have a, a input to society roughly comparable in scale to the purchases of steel and polymers that's improving, however, at an economic utility value at a rate that's, let's just say, five to tenfold faster than those other two inputs, that has predictive impact, that has predictive value. It also tells you in a way, uh, predictive, positive predictive value. Uh, it also tells you in a way why, uh, why we had the CHIPS Act, why Congress was so eager to enact legislation to uh, protect and reshore the, the domestic semiconductor industry, it's because it's now a consequential industry. And for those, you know, those of you who, who haven't heard my podcast on the Chips Act, you'll go back and find that one. You'll see that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the manner in which the Congress uh, has implemented this act. I'm not sure it's the right way to go about it, but I, 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 I understand and endorse the sentiment. Let's just say, and it will, it will have some impact. Uh, it won't be, won't be exactly what. Congress intended, which is pretty typical, but it's it's not surprising. I mean, if you wind the, the clock back again, as we use the we use the way back machine, uh, for those of you who have forgotten this part of the history, of the uh, the free market president that, that I worked for, Ronald Reagan, uncharacteristically launched a protectionist response to uh, to the increase of imports of steel back in 1984. Uh, that was because steel was then a huge input and share of the American economy. And steel imports had been rising steadily uh, at that point for a couple of decades and had already risen to become roughly one third of America's steel consumption was from imports at that time. I, da I dare say Congress would be thrilled to uh, get American semiconductor industry to have only one third of our semiconductors imported. I mean, which is essentially the, the goal of today's protectionist response. But my point is that it, it was consequential then and consequential now, not because of the politics. The politics are derivative from the fact of the role and importance of an input like that to the economy. And during the Reagan era, uh, if you want to think about it in sort of rough dollar terms, the reason for the focus on steel, and there were semiconductors then, I know that because I worked in the semiconductor industry before I joined the Reagan administration. There were semiconductors then too, but the steel industry globally then was about a $400 billion a year business. And uh, the global polymer industry also existed then. It was about a tenth of that size, about 30 billion. And the global semiconductor industry uh, at that time of, of in the early Reagan era was was didn't even didn't even get a break ten billion dollars. So you could see why the focus then would be on steel and why the focus today would be on semiconductors. In fact, collectively, the United States, uh, Japan, and Europe have all uh, put in place legislation for subsidies that total something like a hundred billion dollars for the chips industry to you know, locate each of the respective domains that people want them in. No one knows what China's subsidy number is, by the way, but it's obviously big. 
Those industries will take the subsidies. I mean, that's the whole side discussion. Um, and they'll have some impact. Who wouldn't take free money if you're going to give it give it to you? But just, just for context to know why that's not the primary driver of where semiconductor fabs will be built, is you just think about the scale of money involved in that industry. I mean, the global uh, chip makers collectively have pl- plans for new uh, new fabs that involve capital spending that exceeds $700 billion. So yes, uh, um, if you offer 10 or 15% of that, that's the $100 billion, for a gift, uh, that might put the finger on the scale and move some plants from one place to another. But the, the principal reason for that, those planned plants, capital spending, have nothing to do with the subsidies. That's a lot of money. And the decisions that are made will be dominantly made based on other variables relating to how easily, how easy it is to build a factory, how much it costs to operate a factory. These are all variables that are going to be more impactful than just the subsidies. But that point isn't that, it's that this is a big industry with consequence that is out outweighs consequences of decisions and capital spent in the previous major inputs to global economies, which are again, polymers, uh, plastics, and steel. So let me let me let me let me switch gears. Let me let's go back to specifics. Come off of the fifty thousand foot level and go back to the specifics to give you one more one more specific example of of the consequence of the marginal dollar spent being far more impactful in the future than in the past. And let's just look at a specific kind of chip or chipset. We're making you know computer chips that fall into two classes. Uh, chips that do computation still calculate things. It's call it the Excel spreadsheet class, spreadsheet class of chip. You're trying to do calculations, and then we make chips that do inference, that make pictures. Right? Pictures are not computational. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, is not computational in the literal sense of the word. It's these are inference engines. They're looking at pictures to analyze them. They're giving advice. That class of chip, the AI or machine learning class of chip is an entirely new class of semiconductor. It's a big industry already. It's growing rapidly. It's a splinter industry, if you like, off of the traditional computational chip industry. It's the same businesses uh, in some cases, entirely new businesses in other cases. But to give you an example of the velocity of change in that input class of semiconductors that hasn't slowed down. In fact, it's still accelerating. I'll give you an example of a specific chip made by a company called Cerebras. And the chip is uh, the size of a dinner plate, of a large dinner plate. A chip, remember the word computer chip was because the silicon chip, the size of your small fingers, fingernail, you know, contains you know, millions or billions of transistors. But this one chip is the size of a small pizza. Uh, it's an artificial intelligence engine. It's a it's a AI or machine learning chip, a single chip the size of a pizza. It's a single that single chip uh, has uh, information inference processing capability fifteen thousand times better, fifteen thousand times more powerful than the second place uh, chip made by, by whether it's Nvidia or Intel. Uh, it, it's an astonishing accomplishment. Uh, it is an engine, if you like, of innovation. People call these uh, engines for a reason. E- economists you know, stole the term from the engineers, right? The in, in, Because engines create disruptions. Engines propel things. Engines don't just propel vehicles. They propel economies. They propel economic growth, both in literal and metaphoric terms. I mean, the steam engine, the internal combustion engine, the jet engine, the rocket engine, those are all engines, but they're also engines of, of growth in, their, in, in the economy when they're instantiated as products and machines and services. In fact, the car engine is arguably one of the most important engines of growth and personal freedom in, in history. Maybe the only engine equal imp- impact, arguably perhaps soon greater in impact, is of course is the information engine. The, the, the artificial intelligence engine. These engines of the class of the Cerebus chip aren't going to show up in your smartphone. They're not going to be in your PC. Remember, the chip is the size of a small pizza. It's going to show up in data centers, in the cloud, in the cloud. 
that's where they're going to show up. They're going to show up as inference in advice giving in analytics engines and graphics processing engines, both for gaming and for other purposes, especially for other purposes in the cloud and data centers. This is an accelerant uh, of profound difference from just an incremental change. The, the whole class of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that's now moving into the cloud and that democratizing access to that class of, of um, uh, again, it's the word doesn't do it justice of computation. Remember, when we say computation now, it's equivalent to calling your smartphone a phone. You don't use it for phone calls very often. It's not a telephone anymore. It bears a very little resemblance to a telephone of the dawn of telephony. It bears as much resemblance to a telephone as a modern data center with its computational engines bears resemblance to a computer, a mainframe computer of the 1980s era of Ronald Reagan. They are profoundly different uh, technologies and profoundly different economic engines. To give you a, a sense um, of how profoundly different they are, let me go back up to 50,000 feet to use an economic metric. Uh, these these uh, engines, these computational engines go into the infrastructure of the cloud and they perform a service, right? You, you buy the service and you can measure the economic value of that service the way you would measure the economic value of a transportation service. Right? You could measure transportation service by what you pay for a fare and what you really care about when you buy a, a, the fare on a stagecoach or a steamship or for a taxi or an Uber or for an air ride, what you're really, what you're really buying is a, a service that you could measure and call it feet per hour per dollar spent, right? I mean, the lower, the lower, the more, the more feet per hour I get per dollar spent, the more likely I'm in am to use that service because I people want speed, the velocity, the feet per hour, uh, for obvious reason. Uh, the most precious resource in the universe is our time, and we care about time, and businesses care about the velocity of uh, getting products to market or getting supplies into their factories, so, but you care about money. So the metric you'd measure in transportation services, how technology changes that would be sort of a way to, to normalize all forms of transportation would be to look at the fare, the service in feet per hour per dollar. If As I increase the feet per hour per dollar or inversely I spend less dollars, to get the feet per hour, to get the velocity, the more you'll use the service. You can do the same in, in, in computation with the caveat about what the word computation really means now. You can measure it in computations per second per dollar. One could do that. And we, we, we can do that. And if you measure, if you use that metric, what we find is that the technologies of adding machines, the for if you like the electromechanical era of computation, those technologies in the first uh, 50 years of the 20th century, they got better in those terms by sevenfold per decade. You've got seven times more computations per second per dollar for every decade of progress. And then when the electronic computing era came along, we accelerated that metric, the computations per second per dollar, that improved at 16-fold per decade. That had impact, right? Obviously, a lot more computations. People bought a lot more computing services because you've got a lot more computations per second per dollar. Uh, you reduce the cost of computations per second by looking at the acceleration in this metric, not just the speed of the computer. This is a different metric. It's computations per second per dollar, real dollar spent. In the cloud era, beginning just after Y2K, that metric, computations per second per dollar, is increasing at a thousand fold per decade. This is unprecedented in history. In fact, to give you a context of how unprecedented it is in history, go back to my transportation analogy, the feet per hour per dollar, that metric also increased a thousandfold. That the fare purchased measured in real dollars, if you measure it in terms of feet per hour per dollar, that economic value improved a thousandfold in transportation going from the steam era to the car and airplane era of today. But it took a century. The underlying economic value of transportation from technology feet per hour per dollar took a century to improve a thousandfold. We're now making the equivalent economic measure, computations per second per hour per dollar, improve a thousandfold every 10 years. This will have economic consequence. It'll take a little time to show up, 
It will take time to show up just as it did in transportation domains because it takes time for markets and businesses and, and other services and functions to both adopt and adapt. Both, both take time. You change operational metrics. You change the very character of how businesses are organized around these kinds of changes, um, these kinds of structural uh, underlying engineering changes and economic changes in the basic core means of doing a business or manufacturing something or operating something. So we're going to we're going to see uh, very very positive structural changes in our economy, disinflationary changes, if you like, wealth creating changes, and it's because because these this feature this profound acceleration in uh, this metric of computations per second per dollar. Again, with the caveat of what the word computation means, uh, this is very recent in our history. It's starting. Uh, only the last decade or so, it's already underway, just as the Johnny Carson robot and the Jimmy Fallon robot are technologies that are already underway, but just newly introduced into the market. I'm going to talk more about what that means uh, in a part two of this, this podcast, because that's enough for part one. It's, I think it's, it, it should be obvious that it, it has predictive impact, predictive value when you see these character of changes. But one wants to think about specific examples of what would predict its consequence of that profound change in an economic uh, feature of our underlying economy. That's what I'll talk about in uh, in part two. We'll look at some specific implications, specific changes in uh, products and services in our economy that are coming in the in the next decade or so. Uh, you know, with again, I'll say with the caveat that if we let it happen, if we have governance that's reasonably sane, that we can all uh, get along reasonably well uh, in the future, and we've done a decent job in the last century or so, not perfect job. So uh, on that note, uh, I, I will say again, as all podcasters do, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please rate them on whatever platform you're using. Uh, we prefer a good ratings, <laughs> obviously, yeah, but comments are welcome. And we'll do a, re, a revisit of sort of energy issues in coming uh, in coming weeks and months as well, because they're not going away. But I want to stay focused on uh, the optimistic future, the potential for realizing a, a dramatic and meaningful change in the future for ourselves, for our children, and for our grandchildren. Uh, because first, it's true. It's not an optimistic view based on Pollyanna thinking. It's based on a realistic evaluation of inventions that have already happened, uh, which is the core point of this whole uh, disquisition today. So with that, this is Mark Mills uh, signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Thank you.